0: So let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-9. to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes, to, <laughs> to, to the church of God um, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the God, the Lord.
1: We're starting a new uh, series in, uh, as you might have gathered, in First Corinthians. Most of the New Testament is made up of letters uh, written by the apostles. I'll explain what an apostle is in a wee minute um, to Christians and churches back in the first century. These uh, early, the first Christians are kind of forefathers, if you like, uh, and the, and the the books of First and Second Corinthians are are just exactly that. There are two letters that the Apostle Paul sent to this real church. They're real historic, real people. Sosthenes is a real person. Um, and all the other people mentioned in this book, Chloe and so on, they're all real people. Um, and there's a couple of things. As, I really want us to delve into this as much as we can. So there's a couple of things that we're, we're doing to, to help us as a church and help you guys follow along. The first thing is um, I have really well designed this pocket pocket size guide. It's pocket size. Yeah, really big pockets. Uh, I don't know. If only we had a graphic designer. Um, but that just kind of shows you how the, the, the date or, or, or what, what passage are going to be on each Sunday and, and how we're breaking the thing down. They're on the coffee desk, uh, just grab one on your way out um, and that'll kind of fold it up many, many times and it'll fit in your Bible. Um, and uh, that'll kind of help you to be reading ahead. So it's a good idea to be like, if you know what next on these passages, read ahead, be thinking about it. If you have questions, write them down. Talking of writing them down, we have these um, these journals. Um, so they are... I'm going to open this one up. Uh, they are journals which contain the the, the, the text the, the, the actual bible text and then they have space for notes. So a really really good way to kind of every Sunday be be, be making some taking some notes from the sermon, jotting so, some stuff down that you can go back and reflect on, take to your MC, whatever you want to do uh, and then by the end of when we finish this book you'll have a full notebook full of the Bible passage and 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 your own notes and stuff. We have those uh we I'd love to be able to give them away, but we can't. So they're four quid each, but I think it's totally worth it. So Jess is going to, where is Jess? Uh, Jess is right there. Uh, Jess is going to be selling those afterwards down at the back. So even if you don't have four quid this week, it doesn't matter. Just uh, she'll take your name down and you can grab one of these in the way out and then just bring the four quid next Sunday. Um, but I, I would highly recommend that. Um, uh, yeah, definitely recommend that. I know Travis has used them before in different cities. So he's got one there. Look, he's already rocking and rolling. Um, he just did that on his own. He didn't know we were going to do this, um, but they're great, so grab one. Cool. Um, as you'll see on the, I know this is a lot of information to start with, but it's kind of... we're just getting into it. As you'll see, when you, when you get one of these handouts, you'll see that we've, we've broken... The, I've kind of broken the, the book down into five parts. So the series is 1 Corinthians, but there's really five mini-series within that, um, just as Paul pulls out different themes and different topics in, the, in, in his letter to this church, um, and and was the first section that we're starting today is the Imperfect Church, it's called the Imperfect Church, that's chapters 1 to 4, and then chapters uh, 5 to 7 is, is he's talking about life together, what it really means to, uh, um, to, to be together as a, as a community, uh, and in particular he's addressing some of the problems that were happening in the church there. And then part 3, uh, one part that I'm really looking forward to is uh, chapters 8 to 10, and he's talking about joyful denial. So it's this idea that we follow Christ and we deny ourselves. There's parts of our lives we have to give up and sacrifice, but we do that joyfully. And then part four, uh, the gathered church. So at Village, we talk about the, the, the scattered church and the gathered church, right? Um, and, and here Paul is really telling us uh, how to do a church gathering, um, so so he, he, he gives us some instructions for how to do that in a way that honors Jesus and a way that, 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 we, that honors each other. So that's chapters 11 to 14. And then finally, the last one, And we're going to arrive here on Easter Sunday. See what I did there? This is going to be good. Easter Sunday, we arrive at a section called Beyond the Grave. And Paul starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of us as Christians. um, And that's going to be a really, really good time. But that's Easter. (laughs) So we've got quite a lot of work to do before there. But I'm really excited about this. Uh, I love that feeling. And um, I've been kind of reading around this and studying this for the past wee while. And I'm excited to delve into it with you. One one other quick thing that I want to say before we get started into today's passage. This is a real church. The Corinthian church was real people. Paul was a real person. He was a human man. They were human people. And we're going to meet some of them. We're going to hear their names. We're going to hear about their lives. And, and, and But I don't want us to approach that as, here's an example. Let's just see this as good advice. Because Paul was human, but he was also... He was also inspired by God. He had the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write this. So, so this letter that we have is the word of God. um, And I'm going to explain that a little bit more later on, and we'll see that as we go through. Paul is writing as a human being, but he's also writing what's called under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, what we have this letter for us is actually God's word to us as well. So, it's not just good advice. Um, it's not just lessons to be learned from these people. There is that, but it's also God speaking to us. So I, I want us to approach it in that way. So we're really asking as we go along, what is God saying to us through this letter, In, in not not just to the, the ancient city of Corinth 2,000 years ago, but to us in, in Belfast in 2019. Um, cool. That was a lot, wasn't it? Everyone okay? Everyone? We're all on the same page. Good. Grab a journal. Grab a... Grab a, a pocket-sized handout. I think that's very funny. Um, it, I really wanted to be this size, but I couldn't figure out how to make that work. Anyway, um, cool. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start into this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Father, thank you that you inspired Paul to to write these words to that church who needed it then. Uh, but Lord, we need it right now. Uh, we need you to speak to us. Uh, we want to be children who listen to our Father's voice, um, Help us to hear what you have to say through this book. Help us to take it as it comes and allow you to lead us and guide us through that. And, and Lord, even as we prayed already this morning upstairs that uh, you would change our lives because of it so that, that you can be glorified. Um, help us now in the next half an hour or so to, to, to work our way through the first part of this, Lord, and, and to hear you speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last night I told Haley that she gets a mention in the sermon, and I don't know if she gets nervous or not, but every night again I mention Haley. Eight years ago this January, I proposed to Haley, and she said yes, she's here as my wife. Um, right, so it's a bit of a funny story, because I wanted everything to be perfect. Like, I, I really, really wanted to be perfect. So I um, went and found the perfect an- antique ring, and uh, I bought plane tickets to Rome, like this perfect romantic city. Uh, I had it all planned out. It was going to be perfect. I was gonna, we were going to go for dinner, and we were going to go to the, 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 the Trevi Fountain. If you've ever been to Rome, it's very beautiful and romantic, and, and it, was, it was all just going to be perfect. But it didn't really turn out to be perfect because I'm an idiot. And uh, basically, the night before we left, I had convinced Tilly that I was going to break up with her. Uh, I didn't mean to. She just thought I was because I was being weird and cold. Uh, then uh, we were on the bus from the airport into Rome, and I was just so nervous. I was sitting on the bus, holding. A, I remember holding my backpack like this, <laughs> uh, sweating and everything, just like being really quiet. And then um, we finally got down to the Trevi Fountain, and there was just so many people there, and I was freaking out. It was like, ah, this is not perfect, it's not good enough. So we, found this other, I, I, we went for a walk and found this other spot, and then I got down on one knee, and, and I had the, the ring in the zip pocket inside my coat, and the zip got stuck, so I was down on one knee trying to like... For ages, it felt like it felt like ten minutes trying to like get the zip down, and then. But I couldn't stop talking, so I was saying all this stuff, and it was not perfect at all. Uh, well, maybe it, it ended up in our minds. It's perfect now, uh, but the point is, I was trying to find perfection, and it just didn't work out. And uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I think that's how we often go through life, isn't it? We want things to be perfect. Um, Maybe when you're a kid, you want the perfect toy, right? How many of us wanted the perfect toy? Um, Maybe when, I mean, I remember I wanted, uh, I don't know if you remember Thundercats. Tom remembers Thundercats. And one of the guys had like the the sword, and I wanted the sword, and then I got the wrong one. I got the He-Man sword, and it wasn't perfect. And anyway, um, maybe when you're a teenager, you want the perfect image. Maybe still you want the perfect image. Uh, Maybe when you get a bit older, you want the perfect partner. Uh, Maybe you want the perfect body. I've already attained that, obviously. Um, (laughs) That was a joke. Um, But my point is we're often driven by pursuit of perfection, aren't we? Um, And I think one of the problematic areas when we pursue perfection is when it comes to church. How many of us have shopped around different churches looking for the perfect church? And and I think that... um, if, you, if we read these first nine verses of, of First Corinthians that Victoria read, if you read them without knowing anything else about the church in Corinth, you could be mistaken for, you could be forgiven for, for thinking that um, this was the perfect church, the way Paul talks about them, the way Paul talks about their relationship with God. But the truth is that this isn't the perfect church, and, and even more so, we're not the perfect church, far, far, far from it. And as long as the church is made up of human beings, which it always will be, it won't be perfect. And just like our church and every other church has ever existed, you could go to many other different churches in Belfast even, and none of them be perfect. Corinth was, uh, the city of Corinth itself was a, a really important city in the Roman Empire, and partly because of where it was situated. So, Tim, can you flick on that map on the first slide there, please? It was, um, there we go, can, can everyone see That's kind of not very clear, but I hope it's clear. Corinth was situated on this little strip of land, just close to this little strip of land, only four miles wide. So it, it, it links this uh, peninsula to the mainland Greece. And because of that, it had two ports on either side of it, one in the, the north and one in the south. And, and that made it really, really important. So for a long, long time, for hundreds of years, in fact, if you were traveling from north to south, you would travel through or close to Corinth. In fact, it was it, it, if you wanted to sail around, it was like 250 miles, and it was really dangerous, and it obviously took a long time. So captains would actually pay to have people carry their ships across the four miles. They would roll them on rollers or, or skids or whatever along the, across the land. But because of that, it, because of where it was, there was loads of trade coming in there. Um, So it was a place where you could do really well in business. It was a place where power-hungry people went to. It was a place where everybody was out to get to the top, and they didn't care who they trampled over to get there. Um, Also, every other year, there were these games called the Isthmian Games, and they were these huge games like the Olympics. In fact, the Olympics, the ancient Olympics were the only The only other games bigger than these games, and, and that meant that, that every two years hundreds of people would cram into this city, hundreds and thousands of people athletes, fans, tourists would, would cram into this place it was really it was a cosmopolitan kind of city that was like full of uh, different ethnicities, races, it was kind of halfway between the east and the west and and all that kind of stuff It was also uh, a little bit about the culture. It was also, it was dominated by uh, uh, kind of pagan religion. So uh, there was a there's a big massive hill, 1,800 feet tall, and on the top of that, um, and this was pretty common in ancient Greece, they would build their temples on top of hills because you want to be closer to the gods. Uh, and on top of this hill, overlooking the city, was a temple to Aphrodite. Now Aphrodite is the the Greek goddess of love, and she's sometimes pictured as having a, a demon. Um, uh, you know, wrapped around her, her ankle or on her shoulder. Uh, the, the, demon, the, the, the demon's name is Eros. It's where we get erotic from. It's all about sex. And this temple had over a thousand priestesses who, who served in the temple, and their job was to be prostitutes. So every night, they would come down off the hill into the city, a thousand prostitutes, and they would just ply their trade with all the sailors that were in town, uh, with all the businessmen, with all the athletes, and uh, from what you can read in history, it seemed like business was pretty good. It was really a cult that was dedicated to sex. It was, it was all about glorifying sex. Sex is what we worship, almost. But then there was also another temple dedicated to the god Apollo. And Apollo was the, the god of music and poetry and songs. But, but he, was also, he was also always pictured as like the ideal standard of male beauty, uh, like me. So he just looked like me, think of me. Um, but he was, So he was pictured as like, you know, like really strong and muscular and, and beautiful face uh, and around his temple were covered pictures of him uh, uh, engaged in, in activity with, with young boys and, and it promoted this kind of uh, culture where, where men would want to have sex with young boys. And this is the kind of culture that was just prevalent in this in this city. So you have people, power hungry people from all over, loads of different languages. Everyone trying to make money. Everyone trying to get ahead. Everyone uh, obsessed with sex. And all these—it uh, was actually so bad that, that, that uh, to 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 be called a Corinthian was like a it was like a bad word. It was like if if I called someone a Corinthian, it's like calling them a pervert. That's kind of what that's kind of what it was like. It was like a, a term for debauchery. So it was this melting pot of, of cultures and sex and every, every kind of thing you can imagine. And, and I'm trying to paint this picture, but one commentator that I read this week, he, he describes it as this. He says, um, Corinth was a mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, slaves, tradespeople, hucksters, whatever that is, and agents of every form of vice. It was so bad that Paul was actually afraid to go to Corinth. This is Paul, who's been through all kinds of stuff. In chapter, in chapter two, uh, in chapter two, in in verse, in verse three, we're going to see that, that he was actually, um, he was actually, uh, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He was terrified to go to this place, but he did go there, and this is where the church came from. So, if you if you want to during the week or later on, go back and read Acts, Acts chapter eighteen. So Acts is kind of like the book that records a lot of. Paul's activity, what he did. And uh, then in the letters, we kind of see some of the outworking of that. So in Acts 18, he, he goes to Corinth and he got a job, we, we think, as a, a tent maker. That was his um, trade. And, and he would make tents and that left him about, he, he probably had about eight hours a day where he could actually go into the streets and, and tell people about Jesus. And, and like he always did, he started in the Jewish synagogues. Um, because that's where he, he knew the Jewish culture and he could start there easily. And he met, uh, he met Priscilla and Aquila, these two Christian Jews. And together, they, they, the, the, the three of them and then some other people, not least of all our old friend Sosthenes, let's not forget him, uh, he, they, they planted this church in Corinth. Um, and it was a church that grew in the middle of the most unlikely place that you could ever think of finding a church. Um, that's kind of the culture they were there. So Paul stayed there for 18 months, and then he left and, and went on the rest of his journey to other places and planted more churches. But in the time since Paul went away, the, he, he left the church in Corinth, uh, things had gone wrong, right? So instead of being separate from the culture and different to the culture they were part of, they had, it had become the same as the culture. So uh, there were divisions in the church, people trying to... Uh, you know, climb over each other to get to the top. Uh, the, the church was cliquey. There were cliques and fractures. The the, the, the rich would lord it over the poor. In fact, the rich people, would, would, would they didn't have to work as hard, so they would turn up early for, for, for their gathering, and they would eat all the food, and, and there would be none left for the poor Christians whenever they arrived. And, and whenever they gathered for communion, they were all getting hammered drunk on the communion wine. And that's not all. They were they were having sex with their relatives and Mother-in-laws and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Basically, and, and, and they were divorcing each other for no reason. And the worst thing that Paul gets to, and what we're going to get to at Easter, is that they had started to doubt that Jesus had even risen from the dead. They didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were questioning it. Now, if I was Paul, say I left here and I, I went away and came back and all that was happening... <laughs> I think the first thing I want to do is give everyone a kick up the bum, right? I would be like, what, you know, what is going on? I don't think I would have started as in, with as much encouragement or as gently and joyfully as Paul did. Paul sees this church and he looks at them. He's, he's, actually, what's happened is someone has sent him a letter. Someone has sent reports and he's heard of what's going on. He's like, I need to send them a letter. I can't get there just yet, but before I do, I'm going to send them a letter. But he doesn't see them for their actions. He sees them for who they are in Jesus, first and foremost. He sees them who they are in Christ. Do they need correction? Yes, 100%. And we're going to get to that bit. But firstly, Paul wants them to see who they are in Jesus. And we see this phrase in verse 2, To the church of God. Paul knows that it's not his church. He knows that it's not the people's church. It's the church of God. And in these first nine verses, before he gets to, hey, stop having sex with each other and stop getting drunk at communion and all that kind of stuff, before he says any of that stuff, he says, he wants to make one point. And this is our, this is our main point this morning. It's on the screen. The point is this. We are the people of God and we're sustained by the faithfulness of God past, present, and future. We're the people of God and we're sustained by the faithfulness of God. That's Whatever else we're going to learn throughout the rest of this series, whatever else uh, you know, whatever else we, we learn, whatever else we read in Corinthians from now through until May, please remember this one thing, that we are, if you're a Christian, this church, we are the people of God and we're sustained by the faithfulness of God, past, present, and future. So in the, in the, in the, in the New Testament, Thirteen letters that we have are Paul's written to various people. And he almost always starts his letters with with, with who he is and who they are in God, right? So that's very, very different from what we hear in the world. So if you watch TV for two minutes, like you'll see an advert for a new car. And that tells you to think of who you are in in terms of, of what you possess. Or if you see adverts for beer... Or, or whatever. They're usually to do with see yourself in relation to other people. Who are you in relation to the friends you have and the community you have and the, and the, the fellowship you can have at the pub? Or if you see like the, the best ones are like those life insurance ones, you know, and you get the scenes of like the kid growing up. It's like a little kid. And then it's like going off to school and going off to uni and blah, 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 blah. They want you to get in the first home, get in the first child, all that kind of stuff. They want you to see your, yourself in relation to, to the stages of life. Never mind all the other things that we're hit with on Instagram and, and Facebook that, that tell us that we are what we look like. Cosmetics and clothes and fashion. We are, we are our bodies. But the Bible is relentless in this one thing that it calls us back to again and again and again. Not not to deny the existence of good things in our lives like cars and clothes and, and, and friends at the pub. Those things are good things. But but the Bible is relentless in in, in this one thing. The Bible defines everything in relation to God. Everything can only, all those good things can only find their true significance in relation to God. And this is how Paul understands himself. Listen to what he says in verse 1. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our, bro- and our brother Sosthenes. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knows who he is, doesn't he? He's Paul, and there's nobody else like him. He knows why He knows why he's here. It's to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle... That's just the word the Bible uses to describe these chosen people who were messengers of God. So God gave them special ability to understand the teaching of Jesus and, and to, to lead the church in that way. It's why they, they wrote the New Testament. And he, he knows, not only does he know uh, why he's there, he knows how he got there. By the will of God. It was the will of God that chose him to be this. He knows where he came from. From a from from God from a God who's who's well governs everything, who's God who is in control of everything, and He knows where He's going. He's He's going to speak the truth of Jesus and to to lead other people to submit to Jesus. Now Paul was this man. He had poor health. He suffered persecution. He had depression. He 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 got beaten. He was put in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was bitten by snakes, all kinds of things. But this one thing remains: He's confident in his identity and who he is because his identity comes from his faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. And and this is the kind of confidence that 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 God and the self-understanding. I think it's a, it's understand ourselves this way that God wants every Christian to have. So I wonder what happened. If, could you put your name into verse one? Not to be an apostle, but to be wherever you find yourself in life. Not just your job. But, but Tim, called by the will of God to be a graphic designer for the glory of Jesus Christ. How would that change the way you think about your life? Victoria, called by the will of God to be a medical student for the glory of Jesus Christ. Hazel, called by the will of God to be a sister and a mother and a friend or whatever it is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Basically, whatever, wherever you find yourself in life, can we say that we've been called by the will of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the confidence that that, that God wants every Christian to have, wherever you find yourself in life, to understand ourselves in relation to to who we are in in God. And if we do this, if we have that understanding, there's this stability that comes into our life. So we we define ourselves, we let the Bible, we let God define who we are in relation to him rather than being defined by what we own or how much money's in our bank account or any of these things. When your identity is defined by your relationship with God, you, you don't have to be a slave to trends of the world. You don't have to be a slave to, to, to whatever the predominant thought of the day is. You can live in freedom. You don't, so when the world tries to define you in terms of what your body looks like or, or what, how much money's in your bank account, then you're able to just stand in the freedom of Jesus and say, I know who I really am. I know what my life really means. I've been called to this point in time, to this place in time for the glory of God. Isn't that incredibly freeing? So I want to ask, how does, this, how does this passage over the next kind of 15 minutes or so, how does this passage ask or help us understand this identity? Because pretty much every verse in this, these nine verses are, is intended to, to make these Corinthian Christians understand who they are in God. And I want us to have our roots of this self-understanding deepened. Before we get into any of the rest of this book, I want us to understand who we are in relation to God. So we're going we're gonna to ask two questions. Firstly, we're going to ask, what happened in the past to make you a Christian? And secondly, what will happen in the future to keep you a Christian? It's that simple. What happened in the past to make you a Christian? First two says, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There's three things that, that, that Paul says that has happened to these Corinthians that have made them Christians. Three things that happened in the past. Firstly, they were sanctified in Jesus in Christ Jesus. Secondly, they were called to be saints. And thirdly, they called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's take a wee pause for a second. I just said the word sanctified, and a lot of us don't understand what that word means, and that's okay. The word sanctified is the word that the Bible uses. It just means to, to be made separate, right? It's that we're set apart, that we're, 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 we're different from the world. It's the word the Bible uses to talk, us, uh, to talk about us becoming more and more like Jesus, so usually when we think of this idea of sanctification, it's a process. It's, it's becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more separate from the world, becoming more and more like Jesus so that we will be different from the world. But this verse says that you, to those sanctified, it, it talks of it as something that has definitely happened. He says to the church of God, to those sanctified. So what this verse is, teaches then is that the, 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 the very start behind this process of, this lifelong process of being set apart and being made more like Jesus, there's at some point that there has been a decisive break with the old way of life. Something has happened where, where, where there's been a decisive break and, and you go from death to life. You go from an old way of thinking to having faith in, in all kinds of things to, to a break from that and, and having faith in Jesus. This is what has happened in the past to make us Christians. And we will see this in, cha- in chapter 6 of First Corinthians. Paul's talking to all the kinds of people that will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. Yous were like that. Yous weren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So in other words, there's been something decisive that has happened in the past. You were sanctified. You have been, if you're a Christian, you have been set apart. You broke with that old lifestyle. So, if it's something decisive that happened in the past, then how come we can describe it as a a lifelong process? And I think maybe that's where some of this confusion around this word sanctification uh, comes from. But the answer is found in the rest of verse 2. So Paul describes two things. First, he describes something that that God does and something that we do. Okay, so God calls us to be saints and we call on the name of Jesus for help and salvation. God calls us and we call on the name of Jesus. So verse two says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's what God does, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. So, So a Christian then is someone who has been sanctified in these two senses, right? God has brought us into fellowship with Jesus. That's what it means for, for God to call us, right? You have been called to be saints. And then we have responded to that call by breaking with our old life. And at that moment, we begin to call in the name of Jesus. We, 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 stop, we stop relying on ourselves and we begin to call on the name of Jesus for, for, for help and guidance and salvation. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Does that make sense? God calls us, and in response, we call in the name of Jesus. And these two things together, a call from God to us and us calling to Jesus, is what it means to become a Christian. So it, we can say, in a very real sense, to be sanctified is something that, 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 a decisive thing that happened when you became a Christian. We can say, you, you have been set apart. But as we continue then to respond to that call, that, that we are being more and more set apart. We are becoming more and more like Jesus. And so when we say it's past and done, we, we mean that God decisively called me out of darkness and put me into fellowship with his son. And in response to him calling me in this way, I decide to turn away from my old life. And from that moment, I begin to call in Jesus. So it's something that happened in the past that have been set apart, but it allows room for growth. Does that make sense? Something that God has done and something that we have done. Now this doesn't mean that we play any part in our salvation. I'm going to come to that in a minute. So when we look back at the past and we ask, what happened in the past to, to, to make me a Christian? How does that help us understand our, ourselves? How does this help us understand who we are in relation to God? Well, here's who we are. We are people who God has called into fellowship with his son. And because of that call, we begin to call the name of Jesus. To put it simply, I think we have it on the screen. Yeah. God has called us to Jesus, so we call on Jesus. That's it. God called us to Jesus, so we call on Jesus. The Bible calls us many different things. There's different names for this being born again, being saved, being converted, becoming a new creature, becoming a disciple. Deciding to follow Jesus, receiving Jesus. All these phrases mean, basically mean the same thing. Paul here calls it being sanctified or being called to be saints. Now, saints, by the way, uh, Paul uses this, this phrase a lot when we're going to come back to it. Saints aren't like the, the kind of super Christians that we sometimes think of with halos and all that kind of stuff. Saints are just all Christians because all Christians have been set apart. We've all been sanctified. We're all saints. It's the the same root word. I just want to take a moment to understand this idea of of God calling us to be saints. I just want to clarify what that means. Because if we understand what this call is, it will definitely affect our understanding of of how we became a Christian, but also our attitude as Christians. So notice in verse 9. Paul says, he gives us the goal of this call of God. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the the whole point of Jesus calling you in that way is that you can have relationship, fellowship with Jesus. So if someone asks you or if you ask yourself, and we sometimes cringe at this kind of language, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? What that really means is, has 1 Corinthians 9 become true in your life? Do you have fellowship with, with the living Christ, right? This idea of, of uh, John Piper talks of this idea of, the, uh, of our, our lives, our two lives, my life and Jesus' life. Being so bound up together that, that, he, that, that I receive from him his forgiveness and strength and hope and gladness and joy and guidance and help. And he receives from me my faith and, and obedience and prayers. This is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So what does it mean to be called by God? Because it's different, it's different than me calling you. I can share the gospel with you and say, you come and believe in Jesus. But when God calls us, it's different to that. So later on in, in verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Listen, we've been preaching Christ crucified, and actually that's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it seems like foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, that is called by God, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, this message becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's something that happens that is different from just a human calling you to to believe in Jesus. You see, when God calls you, we, we, we stop being blind to the meaning of the cross. It starts to make sense. We stop seeing it as foolishness. Because it it affects a change in our hearts, right? And this makes sense, right? Because if you think about it, and we use this language a lot, before we're Christians, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. Now, I don't have the power, neither do any of you, to to make someone not dead. But you know who does? God. So when he calls you, it changes your heart. It wakes you from your sleep in that sense. It's not just an invitation. In, In other words... Anyone who decides to, to, to put their trust in Jesus does that because God has called them. They've heard, they've heard God calling them. So when we look back at our lives and, and ask, well, what happened to make me a Christian? It was that God called me to be a Christian. God called us. This doesn't mean that he just invited us into fellowship with Jesus, It means that he came after us whenever we didn't even want fellowship with Jesus. Whenever we didn't even realize that we needed fellowship with Jesus. And he wakes us up from our dead sleep. He opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. What happens when you become a Christian is that you see Jesus for how beautiful he is. And there's nothing else you can do in response to that amazing beauty. But say, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to call on you now. Where else do I go? It's like like when when loads of followers leave Jesus and and Jesus says to his 12 disciples, are you guys not going to leave too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, that was God calling Peter in that moment saying this is the vision of Jesus. Only he has the words of eternal life. Now you might be thinking, well, why is this important? What difference does this make for my everyday life? And that's a good question to ask. Paul says later on, he says, you need to consider your calling. Choose, uh, God chose what is foolish. In other words, think about it, consider it. Why? And he goes on, he says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The the whole point of this is we consider that that we have no part to play in our salvation, that everything was, that God literally rescued me. God called me. God, uh, if you're a Christian, you say the same thing, that God rescued me. This is what happened in the past to make us Christians. God called us, and because of that call, we began to call in the name of Jesus. So what's going to happen in the future to keep us Christian? what's going to happen in the future to keep you a Christian and and we're nearly done. I wonder um, how many of us struggle with doubt in our faith I would say all of us and if you think you don't you're probably not being honest with yourself (laughs) so how can we be sure in the middle of our doubts how can we be sure in the middle of our doubts that the faith that we have today or the faith that we have when we believed in jesus we will have in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or as paul says here at the revealing of our lord jesus christ that just means the day when jesus comes back again Because there's this idea of preservation. Paul says later on in chapter 15, he says, I preach to you the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast. Colossians says that we will be presented blameless to Jesus if we continue in the faith. Jesus himself says in Mark 13, Those who endure to the end will be saved. But you're saying, well, listen, I don't know if I can endure. Like, seriously, my, my faith is pitiful. I'm full of doubt. I'm racked with doubt all the time. But listen to what Paul says in verse 8 of our passage this morning. He says, uh, verse 7 So you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our assurance is not that God will save us even if we stop believing, our assurance is that God is going to keep us believing. This is the word that Paul uses here for sustain in the original language. It means to confirm or establish. It actually means to make something constant. It makes something constant. It's sure. And this is what God does for us. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that you're going to be full of faith all the time and just be like, 100%, I'm in here. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have struggles. We still still are, are living a sinful world and we still battle our old sinful selves. But we can be sure of this. In verse 9, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called. So do you see this connection between the faithfulness of God and God calling us to Jesus? Well, the point is this. This is our last point today. If God called you to faith in Jesus, his faithfulness will keep you in faith in Jesus. If God called you in faith in Jesus, then his faithfulness is going to keep you. The call of God isn't just some invitation to come and, and change your life and be a Christian and st- you know start going to church. That's not how it works. Because of God's faithfulness, he's committed to keeping us in the faith. Our assurance is based on his faithfulness or ours. And that's really good news because my faithfulness isn't that great. I doubt him every 10 minutes, probably more. I certainly sin every more than 10 minutes. Like imagine if, imagine if, Imagine if I was standing up here and saying to you, uh, it's great that you can go to heaven. God has made a way through Jesus, but you need to hang on with your fingernails and it depends on you trusting him every single minute of every single day. Imagine I was telling you that. How depressing would that be? Because our faith just isn't that strong. But the amazing truth is that God calls you into relationship with Jesus and he keeps you in relationship with Jesus. Your salvation isn't based on your ability to be a good Christian, or, or to be good living, or to be holy, or, or to go to ch- or do any of those things that we always talk about. Your salvation is based on the fact that God has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus, and it's his faithfulness that keeps you. It's not your faithfulness, and I think that we need to hear that, especially because we're going to get into this book, and there's going to be challenge for us. It's going to challenge us to correct our lives and, and correct the way we think. Salvation is based on the faithfulness of God. We are God's people, and His faithfulness sustains us, past, present, and future. So let me let me invite you to understand this, and I'm done now. Understand, can can you start to understand yourself in relation who you are in relation to God? Not what the world tells you, not what not what you tell yourself when you look in the mirror, but what God tells us. When you look back to your past. Know yourself as being called by God. When you look forward, know yourself as being caught, kept by God. What happened to make you a Christian is that God called you from death to life. And what will happen to keep you a Christian is the faithfulness of God. You're called by God and you're kept by God. Now, last thing. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, um, there's no hope for me. Like, how do I know God's called me? I'm too far gone. My heart's too hard. You need to take hope in that. Because God calling sinners to relationship with Jesus means that nobody is too bad. Nobody is too hard. nobody's too far gone. God is, is just so gracious and merciful to anyone who calls in the name of Jesus. And in verse two, he says, to all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. All those in every place. That includes you in this place right now. Just call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans, Paul tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that includes you. And maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you don't feel like a Christian. But you can still call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's his faithfulness that sustains you, not ours. Let me pray for us.